Well, thanks, Sam. Uh, it's so wonderful to hear from our kids and our, our children's ministry workers. Thank you all for taking the time to put together those Family Five videos. Uh, we so appreciate what you're doing to minister to the rest of the kids in the church. Well, as I get started this morning, uh, let me just toss out some statements that, that might sound a little, a little strange. Here's the first one. What would you think if I said, a season with COVID is better than a lifetime without it? A season with COVID is better than a lifetime without it. Maybe, maybe right now, if you heard, heard that statement, in the midst of all the frustrations that we're dealing with with COVID, you might think, Ryan, that, that is just a ridiculous statement. I'd gladly take a lifetime of never, ever hear, having heard about this coronavirus. Maybe that's how you'd respond to that statement. Okay. But then what if I made a statement like this? A tearful conversation with a long-lost friend is better than a night at home with Netflix. A tearful conversation with a long-lost friend is better than a night at home with Netflix. Now, I actually got to have one of those kind of conversations this week. And that conversation was with someone who I, I care about very much, but I hadn't been able to talk to in a long time. And it wasn't an easy conversation. Uh, there were a lot of tears. There were a lot of questions, a lot of asking each other for forgiveness. And, and, and just sitting at home, binge-watching some, some stupid Netflix show would have been a lot easier than that conversation. But would it have been better? Would, would watching Netflix be better than restoration and confession and giving tearful hugs that you just haven't been able to give for a long time? Just because something is easier, does that mean that it's better? Just because something is easier, does that make it better? And that's actually an important question for us to think through. In our instant, convenient, microwave American culture, we're often tempted to, to equate the two. We think that the easiest approach is often the best approach. So we choose the path of least resistance. We ask people, we say to people, just dumb it down for me. We like things quick and hassle-free. But just because something is hassle-free, just because it's easier, does that mean that it's better? Well, as you think on that question, let me drop another one of these strange statements on you. How about this one? It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. In other words, it's better to hang out at a funeral home then at a frat party. So what do you think of that statement? Well, as some of you probably know, that statement is actually found in the Bible. It's actually found in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. It's from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, a chapter that is, is full of statements just like the ones I've been giving you this morning. There we read things like, the day of death is better than the day of birth, or sorrow is better than laughter, or better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And statements like those, they might sound a bit strange or odd or puzzling, but, but what I hope to show you this morning as, as we begin our study of this seventh chapter of Ecclesiastes, what I hope to show you this morning is that statements like these help to, to challenge us. 
They confront us in our, our normal, typical way of thinking about the world, and they raise the question for us, do we really know what is better? Do we really know what is better? Is the life that we're living a life that is pursuing what is best? That's what we're going to begin talking about this morning. Now, again, that last statement that I shared, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. It comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and that's the text we're going to start studying through this morning. So if you haven't done so already, I encourage you to take your Bible with me and turn to the Old Testament, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, and turn to chapter 7, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And for those of you who might be tuning in for the first time today, you're new to our church, new to redemption, we're actually in the middle of a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of this extremely interesting, ever-challenging, but amazingly pertinent book of Ecclesiastes. And this morning, we've come to chapter 7. Now, this section of the book, this chapter, chapter 7, is really aimed at challenging our perspective on a lot of different things. Here, through a series of of better-than statements, we're we're being pushed to to view things, to think about things differently than, than maybe we typically do. But, but pushing us to think differently about things is not just a, a chapter 7 thing. It's, it's, what I mean by that, it's not just unique to this section of the book. When it comes to the book of Ecclesiastes, actually the entire thing is focused on getting us to, to think differently, to, to take a step back and look at the life that we're actually pursuing from his, uh, his opening salvo in this book. King Solomon, who, who is writing this book under the pseudonym of Coeleth or the preacher. But, but King Solomon has been challenging us to really step back and look at our life. Remember, if you've been with us, remember his opening words in this book. Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There in that opening statement, Solomon repeats the, this Hebrew term, hevel. Now our English translations, they bring it across as vanity, but it's really a word that means smoke or vapor. And it speaks to the, the fleeting, temporary, and mysterious nature of so much of what we chase. It's like chasing smoke. And, and then do you remember his opening question? Koaleth asked us, what does man gain? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, what are you getting from all that smoke chasing? What lasting gain are you actually finding? You see, Solomon is challenging us to take a step back and look at our life. He's challenging our perspective on our life. And as he does that in this book, he keeps pointing out to us that that life isn't what we think it is. Life isn't what we think it is. It's not accumulating wealth. Or power. It's not about those things. It's not about pursuing pleasure or prestige. Now, now those things in them themselves, they're, they're not bad. And Solomon tells us that he actually considers those things a blessing, a gift from God. But here's the thing. As an end in and of themselves, as the goal, as the, the passion, as the pursuit of our life, Koalath has shown us repeatedly that chasing those things will disappoint us. It will frustrate us. It will even ruin us. 
Life isn't what we think. But just because life isn't what you might think it is, that, that doesn't mean that life then is pointless. There is purpose. There is meaning in this life under the sun, as Solomon calls it. That there is wisdom to be found. And there is life to be enjoyed. There are things that, that are better than other things. And, and, and those better things, they're there to guide us, to, to instruct us, and to help us learn what, what is the way that is best to pursue our life in this world. And, and that's how chapter 7 actually fits into this book. It, it's there to push us away from the vanity, the hevel, and help us to see what is actually better. It's there to show us what is better. And it does this here through a series of proverbial sayings. If you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, uh, this chapter is going to feel a lot like, like that book. Here, here in chapter 7, we find a bunch of these clever little sayings, the, these powerful little turns of phrase, these, these little gems of wisdom that, that seem like they're just falling randomly from the mouth of, of an ancient sage. Now, here's the thing. Each of these proverbial phrases that we're going to see here, they, they are powerful in their own right, but unlike what we find in the book of Proverbs, Chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes isn't just a, a collection of disconnected wisdom sayings. Instead, all of these sayings are working together to challenge our perspective. They are asking us to think through what is actually better, what is best for our life under the sun. And the preacher Solomon begins here, by raising the issue of our pursuits. Look, look at the very opening proverb here in, in this chapter. Look at verse 1. We read, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Now, when you read through that, that seems a bit like, like a strange pairing. You, you read that first verse, a good you read that, the first half of that first verse, a good name is, is better than precious ointment. You might think, okay, I'm kind of tracking with that. But then Koalath hits us with, with the second part of his proverbial two-step, and it about smacks us right upside the head. The day of death is better than the day of birth? Well, what in the world are you talking about, Solomon? Well, well here's the thing. That, that's also the way that the original readers would have heard this. This bizarre pairing would have surprised them as well. And, and here it starts off with, with, with something that would have made sense to them. Solomon starts off with a, a common proverb, a familiar saying in their culture. This opening line here is actually very similar to something that we find in the book of Proverbs itself. Over in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1, we read this. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. So there, that, that proverb, it stresses the invaluable asset of a good reputation. And that was, and it still is, a common idea in culture. And so here in the, in the opening line of this verse, that, that's the point that's just being made. It's, it's a common idea. When, when, when it mentions here a good name, it's talking about a good, solid reputation. But, but let's note for a moment that it is a little bit deeper than just people saying a few nice things about you. You see, in the Hebrew culture... Your name it represented who you are, your personality, your identity. 
And, and so when you have a, a good name, your personality, your character, your identity, along with your reputation, it's all good. It's solid. It's respectable and honorable because that's the type of person that you truly are. But here, then, this proverb, it compares that, it contrasts that with a precious ointment. And in that ancient culture, precious ointment was also a valuable commodity. Back in that climate, in that age, uh, things were hot, things were dusty, personal hygiene wasn't like it is today, and so people could have some pretty strong body odor. However, instead of just grabbing some right guard or some lady speed stick, they, they would try to cover their odor with scented oils or, or fragrant ointments. But here's the thing, those things didn't come cheap. It was usually the wealthy, only the wealthy that could afford such luxuries. So, so having precious ointment, it was a sign of affluence, wealth. But such items, as precious as they were, mark this, they were still only a covering. They were still only a covering. They only, they only masked or covered your stink. They didn't change the reality of it. So although precious ointments were valuable, they were still just superficial. They were just a temporary, a fleeting solution. And so because of that, they can't compare with a good name. They can't compare with a good name. As one author put it, we all know that there's no point smelling like a bed of roses if every time your name is mentioned at a dinner party, people feel the emotional equivalent of nails screeching down a blackboard. You see, it is a lot easier just to just splash some old spice on than it is to live as a man of integrity. But just because it's easier doesn't necessarily mean it's better. And that's the point in this common proverbial saying. One, having a good name is clearly better than the other. But what in the world does all that have to do with the day of death being better than the day of your birth. I mean, I mean, these two phrases, they're clearly connected here. And the second phrase, it's clearly strange. I mean, contrasting a maternity ward with the morgue. Now, now for a moment, let's just think about this. Let's, let's just think about a maternity ward. And although you do find pain and, and screaming and sometimes profanity in those places, and ladies, on behalf of all husbands, we all appreciate that you didn't kill us for doing that to you. But, but a maternity ward, that place of birth, in a, in a maternity ward, you do find, in spite of all those things, you do find joy. You find the joy of birth. You, you find this delight in, in new life. After the tears and pain of delivery, you find the tears and delight of holding that precious newborn child. So, so the day of birth is often a day of, of great joy, great celebration, great happiness. But now let's contrast that with the morgue. The morgue, the place of death. That place is often marked by sorrow and silence and finality. It's actually the antithesis of birth. Birth being all about potential and excitement. So then how in the world could Solomon say that that place, the place of death, the day of death is better than the day of birth? 
How could he say the day of death is better than the day of birth? Well, some come to this text and they think that that Coaleth, this preacher, he's just being a pessimist. They read this as another of his his bitter laments on life under the sun. They, They take it as his way of saying, checking out of all this craziness is so much better than just getting started with it. Checking out is so much better than checking in. But I think, personally, I think that that conclusion both ignores the context and it greatly misunderstands the tone and purpose of this preacher. Again, in his book, he is calling us to take a step back and examine how we're living, what we are chasing in our life in this world. And and so here, I believe that's what he's doing. He's challenging our pursuit. And he's doing it so by by pointing us to the value of a good name, the first line of verse 1, and coupling it, listen carefully, with the value of the day, which will truly reveal the reality of that good name. You see, when it comes to the day of our birth, that is a day all about potential. The world is before us. We We have options aplenty. But that day, it doesn't say anything lasting or final about us. The, the day of birth is just a day of beginnings. It's just, it's just life in the starting blocks. However, the day of our death, that is a day of revelation. It's a day when the story of your life under the sun comes to a close. Who you are and how you've lived, it's all then been written. It's the day when you can no longer change the story, no longer change your reputation. The book is shut. Your life is now written in stone. And that day will reveal what you were really like. Commentator David Gibson puts it like this. He writes, when a newborn, when a ba- a newborn baby is born, there is virtually nothing we can say about her beyond vague impressions of physical resemblance to one of her parents or grandparents. Oh, she looks like her mom. Possibly. But that's about it. Now fast forward to the day of that baby's death at age 86. What can we say about her then, Gibson asks. We might say she was so like Jesus. She she was so kind, so generous, what depth there was to her as a person. Or we might say, she loved her garden. She loved her knitting. She loved her bingo. She loved, and then we choose something to fill in the blanks that wasn't really very much of something at all, Gibson writes. Maybe it's, she didn't really love anything or anyone very much, apart from herself. She lived for herself alone. You see, Gibson's illustration, it shows us that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Not because death is better than life, it's not. It's just that the day of death is a better revealer of reality. It's a better preacher, a better proclaimer of what we've actually been living for and pursuing. So then that raises the question, doesn't it? What are we living for? What are we pursuing? What will that day reveal? What will that day reveal for you, for me? Is our life all about character 
or just about covering? Is our life just about fine smell and perfume, you know, perfume, you, you know, just finding ways to, to cover, cleverly cover things up? Is that what we're spending our time chasing? More money? More pleasure, more knowledge, more power, but all of it aimed at trying to cover the cracks in our character. All of it focused on trying to mask, trying to fill in the emptiness that we feel. When we get to the end of our life, what will that end reveal about our life? When you get to the end of your life, what will the end reveal about your life? And that question is a question that that chapter 7 keeps asking. Like a dog with a bone, this preacher keeps gnawing on that question. And his focus on it it leads him to raise the issue of of what is the better instructor when it comes to our life under the sun. We've talked about the, the better pursuit, character, or covering. But what about our source of instruction? What's the better classroom? Where will we find the better teacher? Where will we receive the better lessons for life in this world? Well, if you look at the text here, the preacher throws out two options, two, two contrasting classrooms. Look again at our text. Look at verse 2. Here, here we find that, that strange proverb that I quoted earlier. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. But then notice the rest of the text. For, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. And you see, here this preacher is making clear that, that he's just not talking about, not contrasting two different kinds of locations. He's not just, gonna, he's not just talking about what's going to show you the better time or, or be the more comfortable destination or have the better ambiance. No, with that phrase, and the living will lay it to heart, he makes it clear that he's contrasting two different kinds of classrooms. He, he's talking about locations where, where lessons for life can be found. He's describing places of instruction, and he says one is clearly better than the other. So, so let's think with the preacher about this. Let's contrast the house of feasting and the house of mourning. Let, let's start with the house of feasting. What kind of life lessons might you find in the house of feasting? Well, Well, often in the house of feasting, whether that's a a birthday bash or a frat party, the predominant theme is life is good. Life is good. Feasting is happening because there's an abundance. The, the table is full, friends are plentiful, and, and everything in life just seems ideal. There's an abundance. There's an abundance. And here's the thing, we should enjoy such times and seasons. There's nothing wrong with, with a party. Ecclesiastes has actually repeatedly made the point that, that life is a gift from God to be enjoyed. So, so this book, it's not calling us to some melancholy, dour, downcast approach to life. But it is calling us to step back and take in the big picture. It asks questions about what we're chasing, what we're living for, and where we're all headed. And here's the thing. Those aren't the typical questions being seriously contemplated in the house of feasting. Often in the house of feasting, the prevailing questions are, would you prefer red or white wine? Would you like steak or shrimp? Would you, do you want R&B or classical or rock on the stereo? 
And our temptation in the house of feasting is to answer, can I just have all of the above? I'll take a glass of each. I'll take steak and shrimp. Let's just put it on shuffle. And that's because in the house of feasting, more seems better. And we just want to enjoy as much as we can in the moment. However, here's the thing. Only focusing on such moments can then blind us to the reality of life in this fallen world. They can blind us to the hevel nature of life under the sun. I mean, just think with me about our life before COVID hit. Think about all the things that we took for granted. Think about the things we took for granted. Things we just assumed would continue on as they, they seemingly had just been kept going for forever. Think about the assumptions you had about your job or about your kid's education or about being able to meet with your brothers and sisters on a Sunday morning, raise our voices in song and gather together around the Lord's table. It's so easy when things are good to take what we have for granted. But that's often the way it is in the house of feasting. The lessons in that classroom often lack full and clear perspective. However, what about in the other classroom? What instruction might we receive in the house of, of mourning? Well, let me just say that the house of mourning is not, not a comfortable classroom. It's not a comfortable classroom, and because of that, a lot of people, uh, especially in our culture, would rather act like it, it doesn't even exist. When it comes to death, we, we, we try to cover it with, with our euphemisms in, in order so that we don't have to really look at it. We say things like, well, he passed away, or she's in a better place, or they're no longer with us. And we choose those expressions because saying they died seems so raw and so final. But that's the way things are in this classroom. Here, here in the house of mourning, it is obvious that life ends. There is a final page to our life under the sun, and we're all going to have to face it. As has been well said, death is no respecter of persons. Or as verse 2 puts it, this is the end or destiny of all mankind. Our life here under the sun, it ends. And all of the, the more, the abundance that seemed so important in the house of feasting, it, it all just gets left behind. The heavenly nature of so much of what we chase, the smoke-like nature of it, is clearly on display in the house of mourning. The house of mourning sobers us. It reminds us of what is truly important. As one author put it, outside each funeral home, God holds up his picket signs. Life is brief. Death is inevitable. Walk wisely. And within each funeral home, every casket cautions us, redeem the time, and questions us, how are you spending your time? The house of mourning, the place of death, is a powerful teacher when it comes to living life. 
And that's why Koaleth calls it the better classroom. Look at our text down in verse 4. He tells us, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, now here the preacher uses a different word than feasting. He uses a term which the English Standard Version, the version I'm preaching out of, it translates as mirth. And that word, it speaks of of pleasure, uh, of amusement, uh, of just having a good time. The house of mirth, it's a place of distraction and diversion. And according to Solomon, who who had spent a lot of time in places of amusement, distraction, and diversion, setting your heart on such a place, well, that's the approach of a fool. You you see, a fool simply occupies his mind with amusements. She, She simply sets her heart, her affections on distractions and and their will. It, It just keeps chasing hevel after hevel after hevel. Smoke after smoke after smoke. And they do that because they don't want to look at the end of life. They don't want to admit that it's coming. They don't want to have to reckon with its message, so they ignore it. And they do so to their own ruin. One day it will come, and they won't be ready. One day the emptiness of their pursuits will be exposed. Uh, The the vanity of their their perfumed existence will be on display. And the important lessons that they they skipped out on will all come back to haunt them. And the wise, the wise get this. They, They see as they sit in the house of mourning that life has a terminus point. That the house of feasting can quickly become the house of mourning. And that the things that we chase so easily turn to smoke in our hands. And so they take it all to heart. They lay it to heart. They think about it, and they contemplate it, and they are instructed by it. You see, their heart is in the house of mourning, not not because they are morbid or, or... pessimistic people. That's not the preacher's point, and that's, that's not how he's calling us to live. Instead, what he's calling us to do is he's calling us to live honestly. He, he's calling us again to step back and, and take in the big picture. He, he's pointing us to the better classroom when it comes to teaching us about the nature of life in this fallen world. He's calling us to realize that it ends. And then to contemplate how that ending, listen, should shape our living. To contemplate how that ending should shape our living. And beloved, here's the thing. It should shape it in a positive direction. A positive direction. And that leads me to my my third and final point for this morning, what I'll call the better remedy. We've talked about the better pursuit and the better instructor. Now let me unpack Solomon's better remedy. But as I do this, let me first say that some of you watching this, you might be feeling like, wow, today's message has just been one big downer. Maybe you're thinking, Ryan, what in the world are you doing spending all this time just talking about death? Well, first off, uh, I'm just preaching the text. (laughs) We're walking verse by verse through this book, and and this is what's next. But also, as I pointed out, Ecclesiastes, it wasn't written to bum us out or to create in us 
some pessimistic approach to life. Maybe, maybe it feels that way on first glance. But it's actually written to help us learn how to live life and how to enjoy life. And, and as chapter 7 here, it challenges our perspective with these strange problems. That's still in focus. With all this talk about death, the focus is still on living life. It's still on living life. But here it's showing us that to live life and to enjoy life, we need to understand that the bitter, the bitter helps us taste the sweet. The bitter helps us taste the sweet. If all you eat is sweet, you're going to go taste blind to the true flavor of it. You're going get, to get numb to it. But you throw in some bitter, some salty, and that sweet flavor is going to pop. You got something to play it off of. You got something to put that taste in perspective. And that's the root idea in, in another strange phrase in our text for this morning, the phrase found in verse 3. Go ahead and look at it. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Now, now the key to understanding that strange phrase is to focus on the, the transformation of the heart. That by the sadness of the face, the heart is made, transformed. The heart is made glad. You see, something happens to our heart when we see and, and think about the day of death. When we visit the house of mourning and listen to the lessons that it teaches us. When, when we come face to face with sorrow, something happens. Something happens to our heart. Now, if you look at the text in these verses, there's a lot of talk about the heart. You see it there mentioned in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. But please understand, when the Hebrews talked about the heart, they weren't just talking about your feelings. Instead, they were actually talking about the, the seat of your intellect, your mind, the, the seat of your affections, your desires, and the seat of your will, the fount of your actions. Proverbs 4.23, it describes the heart as the spring or the wellspring of of life. So the heart, it's the real you. It's the you which processes life and from out of which you then live life. And here, this preacher tells us that contemplating sorrow, contemplating our mortality, contemplating that our life does have an end, it has an effect upon our heart. But he surprises us by telling us that that effect is gladness. By sadness of face, the heart is made glad. However, please understand that the, the gladness that he's describing isn't just some silly or, or lighthearted happiness. Actually, the word glad comes from the Hebrew word for good. The word glad that's used here, it comes from the Hebrew word for good. It, it describes something which is sound and right. So he's speaking about a a deep-seated, proper joy rooted in reality, comprehended and appreciated. Let me repeat that because that's important. He's talking about a deep-seated, proper joy rooted in reality, comprehended and appreciated. It's a gladness that can taste the sweet because it knows and acknowledges the bitter. You see, it's not just ignoring reality, trying to 
turn it into a joke or trying to laugh it away. Now, instead, it faces sorrow. It acknowledges the sorrow. And then it lets the sorrow lead it to proper joy, to true gladness in the gift that is life. The gift that is life. The bitter helps us to truly taste the sweet. That's the better remedy than just trying to laugh it all away. But as I close, let me ask this question. What is truly sweet about this life? What is is the sweet that we need to be able to truly taste? In our text, why does the preacher point us to the the day of death and the house of mourning and the work of sorrow? What, What positive outcome does he want for us as we contemplate those bitter things? How will that bitter taste lead us to what is truly sweet? Well, again, it leads us back to this question of how are these things that he's mentioning, how are they better? How are they better? Are they better because they're easier? Are they better because they're more hassle-free? Obviously not. Obviously not. Death and sorrow are never hassle-free. But they're better. Listen carefully. They're better because they lead us to enjoy life for what it truly is. They're better because they lead us to enjoy life for what it truly is. And all throughout this book, this preacher keeps pointing out over and over again that life is a gift. That's what life truly is. It's a gift. It's not a source of gain. It's not something that we can chase and we can conquer and we can possess and put in our pocket and just keep it. It's not about gain. Instead, life is a gift. And as we've talked about again and again, it's a gift from God to be enjoyed with God. And that, beloved, that's where the sweetness is found. It's a gift from God to be enjoyed with God. That's where the sweetness is found. It's found in stopping our attempts to try to control everything, to try to perfume over the emptiness of our chasing, to try to numb ourselves in the house of feeding, feasting, or try to laugh away our tears. Sweetness is found in in accepting life for what it is. That it is God who made us. And he made us to find our life with him. And we find that, that life, we embrace that life through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus said it loud and clear, loud and clear. I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's not my words, that's his. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We we come to the Father, and, and we enjoy our life with our God and with our Father through faith alone in Christ alone. By faith, we embrace The life that he lived for us, a sinless life, lived in our place. His righteousness, clothing and covering all of our failures and all of our shame. And through faith, we rest in the death that he died for us. His death upon the cross, paying the price for our true, full, and complete forgiveness. It's through Christ alone that we come to God and enjoy the life for which we were made. 
And then from that place, when we think about the day of death, we don't live in fear of it. As we go to the house of mourning, we take it to heart and we learn from it. But then we realize that we can have hope beyond the grave because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even in our sorrow, we find gladness because the bitter taste makes the sweetness of knowing our God and walking with him and trusting in his sovereign goodness that much sweeter. How sweet it is to know that he has us. He has us. And this life, all of it is a gift from him to be enjoyed with him. But it's not always the easy and comfortable moments that lead us to see that. Sometimes we need to go to the house of mourning. Sometimes we need a season of COVID-19. Sometimes we need to have hard conversations to open up the door to a restored friendship. Sometimes we need the bitter to help us to taste the sweet. We need our perspective adjusted so that we can truly see what is better. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. I thank you for your word. We praise you for the way that it, it challenges us, it teaches us, and it redirects us away from our vain pursuits. And so I pray that it would do that work today among all of us. Help us to see the reality of life in this world, that the house of feasting can quickly become the house of mourning, that the end of our days will reveal the content of our days. And then even the sorrows, if we take them to heart and let them teach us, will work for our good. And help us to see that the ultimate good that it all points to is truly enjoying life with you. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to embrace the gift that you've given to us and to embrace it through faith alone and Christ alone. Thank you that Jesus changes everything. Thank you for the great hope that is the gospel. Now, now help us to live lives that truly reveal that hope. Lives that are honest, lives that are genuine, and lives that truly do display that which is better. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.